Section 31 of Volume 1C of History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I'm Drew Nelson. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C, Section 31, Chapter 33, Part 1. Henry VIII. Henry, being determined to avenge himself on the King of Scots for slighting the advances which he had made him, would gladly have obtained a supply from Parliament in order to prosecute that enterprise, but as he did not think it prudent to discover his intentions, that assembly, conformably to their frugal maxims, would understand no hints, and the king was disappointed in his expectations. He continued, however, to make preparations for war, and as soon as he thought himself in a condition to invade Scotland, he published a manifesto by which he endeavored to justify hostilities, he complained of James's breach of word in declining the promised interview, which was the real ground of the quarrel, but in order to give a more specious coloring to the enterprise, he mentioned other injuries, namely, that his nephew had granted protection to some English rebels and fugitives, and had detained some territory which, Henry pretended, belonged to England. He even revived the old claim to the vassalage of Scotland, and he summoned James to do homage to him as his liege, lord, and superior. He employed the Duke of Norfolk, whom he called the Scourge of the Scots, to command in the war, and though James sent the Bishop of Aberdeen and Sir James Learmont of Darcy to appease his uncle, he would hearken to no terms of accommodation. While Norfolk was assembling his army at Newcastle, Sir Robert Bowes, attended by Sir Ralph Sadler, Sir Ralph Evers, Sir Brian Latoon, and others, made an incursion into Scotland, and advanced towards Jedburgh, with an intention of pillaging and destroying that town. The Earl of Angus and George Douglas, his brother, who had been many years banished their country, and had subsisted by Henry's bounty, joined the English army in this incursion, and the forces commanded by Bowes exceeded four thousand men. James had not been negligent in his preparations for defense, and had posted a considerable body under the command of the Earl of Huntley for the protection of the borders. Lord Hume, at the head of his vassals, was hastening to join Huntley when he met with the English army, and an action immediately ensued. During the engagement, the forces under Huntley began to appear, and the English, afraid of being surrounded and overpowered, took flight and were pursued by the enemy. Evers, Latoon, and some other persons of distinction were taken prisoners. A few of only small note fell in the skirmish. The Duke of Norfolk, meanwhile, began to move from his camp at Newcastle, and being attended by the Earls of Shrewsbury, Derby, Cumberland, Surrey, Hertford, Rutland, with many others of the nobility, he advanced to the borders. His forces amounted to above twenty thousand men, and it required the utmost efforts of Scotland to resist such a formidable armament. 
James had assembled his whole military force at Fala and Sautry, and was ready to advance as soon as he should be informed of Norfolk's invading his kingdom. The English passed the Tweed at Berwick, and marched along the banks of the river as far as Kelso, but hearing that James had collected nearly 30,000 men, they repassed the river at that village, and retreated into their own country. The King of Scots, inflamed with a desire of military glory, and of revenge on his invaders, gave the signal for pursuing them, and carrying the war into England. He was surprised to find that his nobility, who were in general disaffected on account of the preference which he had given to the clergy, opposed this resolution and refused to attend him in his projected enterprise. Enraged at this mutiny, he reproached them with cowardice and threatened vengeance. But still resolved, with the forces which adhered to him, to make an impression on the enemy. He sent ten thousand men to the western borders, who entered England at Solway Frith, and he himself followed them at a small distance, ready to join them upon occasion. Disgusted, however, at the refractory disposition of his nobles, he sent a message to the army depriving Lord Maxwell, their general, of his commission, and conferring the command on Oliver Sinclair, a private gentleman, who was his favorite. The army was extremely disgusted with this alteration, and was ready to disband when a small body of English appeared, not exceeding five hundred men, under the command of Dacres and Musgrave. A panic seized the Scots, who immediately took to flight, and were pursued by the enemy. Few were killed in this rout, for it was no action, but a great many were taken prisoners, and some of the principal nobility, among these the earls of Cassilis and Glencairn, the lords Maxwell, Fleming, Somerville, Oliphant, Grey, who were all sent to London, and given in custody to different noblemen. The King of Scots, hearing of this disaster, was astonished, and being naturally of a melancholic disposition, as well as endowed with a high spirit, he lost all command of his temper on this dismal occasion, rage against his nobility, who, he believed, had betrayed him, shame for a defeat by such unequal numbers, regret for the past, fear of the future, all these passions so wrought upon him that he would admit of no consolation, but abandoned himself wholly to despair. His body was wasted by sympathy with his anxious mind, and even his life began to be thought in danger. He had no issue living, and hearing that his queen was safely delivered, he asked whether she had brought him a male or a female child. Being told the latter, he turned himself in his bed. Quote, the crown came with a woman, said he, and it will go with one. Many miseries await this poor kingdom. Henry will make it his own, either by force of arms or by marriage. End quote. A few days after, he expired in the flower of his age a prince of considerable virtues and talents, well fitted, by his vigilance and personal courage, for repressing those disorders to which his kingdom, during that age, was so much exposed. He executed justice with impartiality and rigor, but as he supported the commonality and the church against the rapine of nobility, he escaped not the hatred of that order. The Protestants also, whom he opposed, 
having endeavored to throw many stains on his memory, but have not been able to fix any considerable imputation upon him. Henry was no sooner informed of his victory and the death of his nephew than he projected, as James had foreseen, the scheme of uniting Scotland to be his own dominions by marrying his son Edward to the heiress of that kingdom. He called together the Scottish nobles who were his prisoners, and after reproaching them in severe terms for their pretended breach of treaty, he began to soften his tone and proposed to them this expedient by which he hoped those disorders so prejudicial to both states would for the future be prevented. He offered to bestow on them their liberty without ransom, and only required of them engagements to favor the marriage of the Prince of Wales with their young mistress. They were easily prevailed on to give their assent to a proposal which seemed so natural and advantageous to both kingdoms, and being conducted to Newcastle, they delivered the Duke of Norfolk hostages for their return, in case the intended nuptials were not completed, and they thence proceeded to Scotland, where they found affairs in some confusion. The Pope, observing his authority in Scotland to be in danger from the spreading of the new opinions, had bestowed on Beaton, the primate, the dignity of cardinal, in order to confer more influence upon him, and that prelate had long been regarded as prime minister to James, and as the head of that party which defended the ancient privileges and property of the ecclesiastics. Upon the death of his master, this man, apprehensive of the consequences both to his party and to himself, endeavored to keep possession of power, and for that purpose he is accused of executing a deed which required a high degree of temerity. He forged, it is said, a will for the king, appointing himself and three noblemen more regents of the kingdom during the minority of the infant princess, at least for historians are not well agreed in the circumstances of the fact, he had read to James a paper of that import, to which that monarch, during the delirium which preceded his death, had given an imperfect assent and approbation. By virtue of this will, Beaton had put himself in possession of the government, and having united his interests with those of the Queen Dowager, he obtained the consent of the Convention of States, and excluded the pretensions of the Earl of Arran. James, Earl of Arran, of the name Hamilton, was next heir to the crown by his grandmother, daughter of James III, and on that account seemed best entitled to possess that high office into which the cardinal had intruded himself. The prospect also of his succession after a princess who was in such tender infancy procured him many partisans, and though his character indicated little spirit, activity, or ambition, a propensity which he had discovered for the new opinions had attached to him all the zealous promoters of those innovations. By means of these adherents, joined to the vassals of his own family, he had been able to make opposition to the cardinal's administration, and the suspicion of Beaton's forgery, with the accession of the noblemen who had been prisoners in England, assisted too by some money sent from England, was able to turn the balance in his favor. The Earl of Angus and his brother, having taken the present opportunity of returning into their native country, opposed the cardinal with all the credit of that powerful family, 
and the majority of the convention had now embraced opposite interests to those which formerly prevailed. Iran was declared governor. The cardinal was committed to custody under the care of Lord Seton, and a negotiation was commenced with Sir Ralph Sadler, the English ambassador, for the marriage of the infant queen with the Prince of Wales. The following conditions were quickly agreed on that the queen should remain in Scotland till she should be ten years of age, that she should then be sent to England to be educated, that six Scottish noblemen should immediately be delivered as hostages to Henry, and that the kingdom, notwithstanding its union with England, should still retain its laws and privileges. By means of these equitable conditions, the war between the nations, which had threatened Scotland with such dismal calamities, seemed to be fully composed and to be changed into perpetual concord and amity. But the cardinal primate, having prevailed on Seton to restore him to his liberty, was able, by his intrigues, to confound all those measures which appeared so well concerted. He assembled the most considerable ecclesiastics, and having represented to them the imminent danger to which their revenues and privileges were exposed, he persuaded them to collect privately from the clergy a large sum of money, by which, if entrusted to his management, he engaged to overturn the schemes of their enemies. Besides the partisans whom he acquired by pecuniary motives, he roused up the zeal of those who were attached to the Catholic worship, and he represented the union with England as the sure forerunner of ruin to the church and to the ancient religion. The nation's antipathy of the Scots to their southern neighbors was also an infallible engine by which the cardinal wrought upon the people, and though the terror of Henry's arms, and their own inability to make resistance, had procured a temporary assent to the alliance and marriage proposed, the settled habits of the nation produced an extreme aversion to those measures. The English ambassador and his retinue received many insults from persons whom the cardinal had instigated to commit those violences, in hopes of bringing on a rupture, but Sadler prudently dissembled the matter, and waited patiently till the day appointed for the delivery of the hostages. He then demanded of the regent the performance of that important article, but received for answer that his authority was very precarious, that the nation had now taken a different impression, and that it was not in his power to compel any of the nobility to deliver themselves as hostages to the English. Sadler, foreseeing the consequences of this refusal, sent a summons to all those who had been prisoners in England, and required them to fulfill the promise which they had given of returning into custody. None of them showed so much sentiment of honor as to fulfill their engagements, except Gilbert Kennedy, Earl of Cassilis. Henry was so well pleased with the behavior of this nobleman, that he not only received him graciously, but honored him with presents, gave him his liberty, and sent him back to Scotland, with his two brothers, whom he had left as hostages. This behavior of the Scottish nobles, though it reflected dishonor on the nation, was not disagreeable to the cardinal, who foresaw that all these persons would now be deeply interested to maintain their enmity and opposition to England. And as a war was soon expected with that kingdom, he found it necessary immediately to apply to France, 
and to crave the assistance of that ancient ally during the present distresses of the Scottish nation. Though the French king was fully sensible of his interests in supporting Scotland, a demand of aid could not have been made on him at a more unseasonable juncture. His pretensions on the Milanese and his resentment against Charles had engaged him in a war with that potentate, and having made great though fruitless efforts during the preceding campaign, he was the more disabled at present from defending his own dominions, much more from granting any succor to the Scots. Matthew Stuart, Earl of Lennox, a young nobleman of a great family, was at that time in the French court, and Francis, being informed that he was engaged in ancient and hereditary enmity with the Hamiltons, who had murdered his father, sent him over to his native country as a support to the cardinal and the queen mother, and he promised that a supply of money, and, if necessary, even military succors, should soon be dispatched after him. Aran, the governor, seeing all these preparations against him, assembled his friends and made an attempt to get the person of the infant queen into his custody, but being repulsed, he was obliged to come to an accommodation with his enemies, and to entrust that precious charge to four neutral persons, the heads of potent families, the Grahams, Oreskines, Lindsays, and the Levingstones. The arrival of Lennox, in the midst of these transactions, served to render the victory of the French party over the English still more undisputable. The opposition which Henry met with in Scotland from the French intrigues excited his resentment and further confirmed the resolution which he had already taken of breaking with France and of uniting his arms with those of the emperor. He had other grounds of complaint against the French king, which, though not of great importance, yet being recent, were able to overbalance those great injuries which he had formerly received from Charles, he pretended that Francis had engaged to imitate his example in separating himself entirely from the See of Rome, and that he had broken his promise in that particular. He was dissatisfied that James, his nephew, had been allowed to marry, first Magdalene of France, then a princess of the House of Guise, and he considered these alliances as pledges which Francis gave of his intentions to support the Scots against the power of England, he had been informed of some railleries which the French king had thrown out against his conduct with regard to his wives. He was disgusted that Francis, after so many obligations which he owed him, had sacrificed him to the emperor, and, in the confidence of friendship, had rashly revealed his secrets to that subtle and interested monarch. And he complained that regular payments were never made of the sums due to him by France, and of the pension which had been stipulated. Impelled by all these motives, he alienated himself from his ancient friend and confederate, and formed a league with the emperor, who earnestly courted his alliance. This league, besides stipulations for mutual defense, contained a plan for invading France, and the two monarchs agreed to enter Francis's dominions with an army each of twenty-five thousand men, and to require that prince to pay Henry all the sums which he owed him, and to consign Bologna, Montreal, Terouenne, and Ardres as a security for the regular payment of his pension for the future, 
In case these conditions were rejected, the Confederate princes agreed to challenge for Henry the crown of France, or, in default of it, the duchies of Normandy, Aquitaine, and Guienne, for Charles the duchy of Burgundy, and some other territories. That they might have a pretense for enforcing these claims, they sent a message to Francis requiring him to renounce his alliance with Sultan Soliman, and to make reparations for all the prejudice which Christendom had sustained from that unnatural confederacy. Upon the French king's refusal, war was declared against him by the Allies. It may be proper to remark that the partisans of France objected to Charles's alliance with the heretical king of England, and no less obnoxious than that which Francis had contracted with Soliman. And they observed that this league was a breach of the solemn promise which he had given to Clement Seventh, never to make peace or alliance with England. While the treaty with the emperor was negotiating, the king summoned a new session of parliament in order to obtain supplies for his projected war with France. The parliament granted him a subsidy, to be paid in three years. It was levied in a peculiar manner, but exceeded not three shillings in the pound upon any individual. End of Section 31, Chapter 33, Part 1 I'm Drew Nelson in Atlanta, Georgia, recording December 12th and 13th, 2012.